Welcome everyone to episode 258 of Some Like It Scott. I'm your host Scott Shelton and this week we're back with our typical Christmas double feature. This year it's the Bradley Cooper led biographical drama Maestro and the Timothy Chalamet led musical fantasy prequel Wonka. Before we sink our teeth into all that however with me I have my co-host Scott Harvey. Scott, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. How is your festive period treating you so far? Well, Scott, I'm not in too celebratory of a mood right now. Of course, our our podcast listeners can't see this, but I'm wearing sackcloth and ashes right now for the fact that the the DC extended universe has come to an end. It really has ruined the entire um, holiday experience for me this year. So many of my uh, favorite, you know, characters and films will now just just be lost to time. And I guess the only uh, consolation I have is that. Rebel Moon Part One is now on Netflix. So uh, Trial of Fire. Yeah, let's give it its full title. Trial of Fire. Sorry, of course. Yeah. yeah. Only thing keeping keeping me going at this point. But um, yeah. no, in all seriousness, I'm good. Uh, it's a couple of days before Christmas when we're recording this, so I'm very excited. I'm heading back to Tennessee tomorrow. Of course, you're already there, um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to just having some time off from work because the last month sure. has been really hectic at work and uh I, i'm definitely going to enjoy being home with family and just relaxing for a few days yeah i've been home like you mentioned for a week exactly already although i spent the first three or four days stricken by the flu so that wasn't really the most ideal way to start being home for the holidays but mostly recovered now i mean it's why we didn't have an episode last week about wonka like we said we were going to on our and, and i mean i was also i had a, a, a stomach bug which thankfully i thought was the flu but it only ended up being like a 24-hour bug too so neither one mm. of us was was doing well uh yeah we weren't in fighting shape sure. yet we were not yeah. uh chocolate did not sound good to me in any way shape or form so sure. i don't think a wonka yeah. review would have been on the on the card <laughs> probably yeah, my flu is mostly respiratory. I didn't have any like nausea or yeah. stomach bug. I, I didn't really have much of an appetite, but that's not because I was sick to my stomach. It was mostly just body aches, mm. kind of like a half fever and right. um, coughing. I had, I, had a lot of, I had a cough, which there's still lingering bits of that now, but mostly I'm back to, to full health at this point. So. Better to get it out of the way, you know, a week before yeah. Christmas than on Christmas for sure. So. That's no, that's definitely true. It would have sucked to uh, to be getting sick now, a week later, yeah. as opposed to getting sick a week ago. So can't complain too much about that. And it turned out okay anyway because we still are talking about Wonka later on today. But first, we are leading off our festive dinner, so to speak, with Maestro, co-written, directed, and starring Bradley Cooper in his creative follow-up to 2018's remake of A Star Is Born. Maestro focuses on the life of American composer Leonard Bernstein, played by Cooper. And more specifically, his relationship with his wife, Felicia Montenegro, played by Carrie Mulligan. The film is bookended by an interview where Bernstein is playing a piece from one of his operas and being interviewed about his relationship with his late wife, whom he expresses that he misses deeply. With that framing device, the meat of the film flashes back to different points in Bernstein's life, first in his 20s as an associate conductor to the New York Philharmonic Orchestra on the precipice of his breakthrough substitute role for the Philharmonic Orchestra's lead conductor at the time. Shortly after this success, he meets Felicia, an aspiring actress at a party, and becomes enraptured and swept away in their great romance. The film tells the early days of this relationship, but then flashes forward years into the future as their relationship matures. Bernstein's homosexual infidelities mount, 
and tensions in their now affluent family begin to rise. The film continues to explore the growing tumultuousness of their relationship, giving plenty of room for what many critics have lauded as two of the more towering performances of the year from Cooper and Mulligan, respectively. Scott, did you find Maestro to be an immaculately crafted and ever thoughtful biopic of one of the great men of American classical and theatrical music? Or did it ultimately amount to a disappointment with a lot of bluster and a bit of a hair and makeup job? I mean, definitely well-crafted, right? Like I think you would be hard pressed to not be impressed by the level of craft that Bradley Cooper is operating with here. You know, he's been working on this film for more than six years now, I think from the, when it started, you know, being developed. Um, and so he's put a lot of time and effort into bringing this story to the big screen. And that shows uh, in, in the film that he's made. And I certainly, um, you know, don't think it, it could be considered a sophomore slump from a directorial perspective. I think, you know, I have not lost any faith in Bradley Cooper as a, as a very talented director. And there's some really, just some really tour de force moments of direction in the movie. Um, and just sort of bravura sequences that the movie has. Um, mainly those are, are coming on a technical level, um, kind of as I'm alluding to. Um, but, you know, re really some, some indelible sort of images and um, moments from the year are found in this film. Unfortunately, I was disappointed with the film as a whole. Um, on a storytelling and character development level, I feel that it does fall prey while, you know, being better crafted than most biopics are nowadays. I do think it falls into some tropiness at times that, um, you know, we are used to seeing with biopics and, you know, in particular musical biopics, um, like just some certain scenes of like Leonard Bernstein, you know, just doing cocaine like at parties and stuff. I was just kind of like, I feel like I've seen this type of thing, you know, hundreds of times before. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that it is a little bit thin in its sketches of both Leonard Bernstein and Felicia and the, the movie, you know, does want to put at least some focus on Felicia. It seems like most of the, the plot of the movie is centered around their relationship. Um, but I came away in the end not really, you know, feeling like I knew a lot about them, understood a lot about them um, on a deeper level than, you know, what simply what happened in their relationship. And I, I was just kind of left questioning in the end, sort of what it all added up to. I think it's a, you know, again, very well-directed, energetic, vibrant film um, that I was never bored during. I think the performances, they grew on me. At the beginning, I was a little concerned with where they were going. I was a little concerned with some of the, well, you know, the sort of accents and just, um, they're really leaning in to the, the period in the beginning, the 40s period when the, uh, you know, the, the romance starts between Lenny and Felicia. Um, and that rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Um, in the beginning, but again, I think that the actors really grow into their characters over the course of the movie. I was just left a little cold in the end, I think, and um, I'm sure we'll get into more of the details, but um, like I said, I, I think 
for all of the trappings that it has and all of the you know strong filmmaking that it has behind it um i couldn't help but feel that it fell prey to some of the issues that we've talked about with biopics before it felt a little familiar it felt a little thin and it felt like it was just kind of at times especially in the second half of the movie skipping along through the memorable moments in Bernstein's career and life and not in a way that, you know, helped me to particularly understand anything more about, I mean, I think there are moments in the movie where it flirts sort of with some bigger ideas. There's a scene I'm thinking about where he's interviewing, he's being interviewed by Josh Hamilton, who's playing a guy that's writing a book about Bernstein, it seems. Um, and we get a little bit of insight there into his character. Um, but for every moment that there is like that, I think there's three more moments of him being, you know, a narcissist, him being um, cheating on his wife, him, you know, doing drugs, doing all this sorts of thing, sort of thing that we are used to seeing in these movies and in these, you know, types of stories. And I, you know, I don't question that Leonard Bernstein's story was worth being told, but I just feel like the movie was a little thin and unfocused in the end. So um, no knock on Bradley Cooper as a director or as a performer, but um, I can't say that this one quite hit the heights of A Star is Born for me. Yeah, my experience was pretty different. I thought this was one of the better films of the year, probably helped by the fact that I saw this in a theater. So I saw this at the Paris. When it was I did see there. it in the theater as well, to be fair. But yeah. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Most people will be watching, I know. I guess it's is it technically not out yet on Netflix? I actually don't actually know when it comes out. Yeah, I think maybe it's not. I think it maybe Yeah, maybe in the next couple out, days. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I and I thought that the cinematic elements of the film that you were sort of alluding to in the craft side of things were a real marvel of, of the film. I think there's a I mean, there's a very, very notable scene two thirds of the way through the movie that really feels like this is what the movie was made for. Like in terms of a, a perform in terms of performance and craft and spectacle, sure. like that would be, that was the reason to, to make the film and put it on a big screen. Like this is the, this is the scene. It's a very, it's a long take of him um, composing or sorry, conducting at the Eli theater in, in London, which is uh, sort of a famous, you know, triumph for him and his career. <clears throat> and, I just, I guess, yeah, I didn't think the the film was very thin at all. I think the film was actually quite focused. It was very focused on their relationship and how their relationship was the driving force throughout, you know, decades and decades of both of their lives, especially Leonard Bernstein's life, because the film, although featuring Felicia Montenegro quite prominently and Carrie Mulligan's, in fact, has the top bill in the movie, if you want to get technical, um, like the film is ultimately about how their relationship affected Bernstein. And I found that the, the nuance of their relationship and the unhealthiness of their relationship and the toxicity of, of Bernstein and Montenegro in their relationship was pretty compelling. And I, I pretty strongly disagree with the notion that this film is as shallow or as thin or, or as tropey as, as some of the other musical biopics that I think to say that like you see someone do cocaine in a movie and that's like a trope of a biopic seems like a little bit of a shrug to me. I'm like, this is part of their story. 
I don't know what, like, what would you prefer them to do? Heroin? That, Is that like a different that drug? Wasn't the like, old, I mean, that wasn't, the only, that wasn't the only thing, but yeah. It was just the example. Sure. Like we can, we can talk more mind. about it, but I, I think the point is that like, there's this person with like a really strong personality, strong willed. And I think Bradley Cooper plays this, you know, within, you know, a lot of vim and vigor that is on this sort of out of control run, so to speak, of his life where, you know, <coughs> you don't think that any anything can stop him. But I think I think the difference between this film and Bradley Cooper's performance and and Bradley Cooper's writing and directing here is that this film is is showing you, I think, how complicated of a person that Leonard Bernstein actually was. I think a lot of those other biopics are sort of just like saying, look at look at this guy and oh, here's the other thing. Like it didn't really feel like it took us like it oftentimes it feels like it almost like is redeeming and takes a stance on things. And I think I thought Cooper was pretty unflinching in this portrayal of Bernstein. I think that he's pretty much portrayed as this pretty unlikable guy and not a very good partner for the majority of their relationship. And nevertheless accomplished great things but those great things are not necessarily the centerpieces of the movie the, you know there's the big success directing the philharmonic at the beginning there's this massive success that feels like his sort of emotional and uh, professional sort of crescendo at the when he's performing Mahler's resurrection symphony at the Eli Cathedral which I'd already mentioned once um no mention of Lydia Tarr that's very strange that Lydia Tarr didn't come up as his protege well, in this movie yeah I was but, gonna say that was his, her mentor so yeah. yeah exactly um but you know I guess it didn't quite make the cut at the end of the day but I I do think that that the sort of moment where and the moments where the two of them uh, that is Carrie Mulligan and Bradley Cooper are sort of playing off each other and exploring their relationship and all of its sort of complexities. I, I found that to be pretty rewarding. And I found that to be, you know, this to be, you know, another film in the list of like pretty successful biopics this year that I found compelling and telling a, a story with a lot of, you know, frankly, like a lot of, a lot of filmmaking craft that I think other films in the genre have lacked. And so it, I thought it had a lot to offer. I thought the performances were great. I think that there, you know, maybe there's a couple things that hold it back from being, you know, one of the best films of the year for me, but I definitely think that this is one of the stronger outings. And, and to your point, which you also said to be fair, from a directive director standpoint, I think Bradley Cooper is sort of really cementing himself as, you know, whatever project he's working on, he's he's very he hasn't he has an eye for it, he has a mind for it. And what he's producing is a pretty strong output. And I'm curious to see what he does next, because like you said, this, I mean, he's been working on this project pretty much nonstop since The Star is Born finished up. And so it's it's close and he poured a lot into. Yes, he's made cameos or small performance appearances in other films, but he's mostly been working on getting the sun and COVID slowed things down to some extent. But hopefully it doesn't take five years for his next project, because you know, he's clearly very talented behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. Yeah, I mean. You know, again, I agree with all your all that you're saying about the um, direction of the film. You know, we'll get into the the specifics a little bit more. Sure. Maybe I yeah. was just missing something in, in my viewing of it, but uh, it didn't didn't have the impact on me the way that I was hoping for when the the end credits rolled. Yeah, I think there's quite a few scenes in the film for me that that I found pretty over overwhelming, both in terms of a, a cinematic aspect, of course, the the long the long one take and the in the symphony performance I think is like incredibly compelling stuff. But then on the emotional side, I think there's several scenes which we can maybe talk about that I think really strike a chord and I think are pretty much like the 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 meat and almost the foundation of 
of the film itself in, in terms of the emotional side. But why don't we talk about Bradley Cooper a little bit more here? Maybe, and even you can talk about Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan because obviously their performances are so intertwined in the film. Uh, what did you like about their performances? Were there certain things that you think didn't quite deliver what you were hoping for in their performances? Just just speak speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, I mean, generally positive on them. Like I said in the opener, I, you know, I kind of, in the beginning, uh, when they're first having their courtship, especially Carrie Mulligan, I think there's a, it, it felt a little um, affected for me, what they were doing, like the, you know, accents and the, like they're, they were trying very hard again, particularly Carrie Mulligan, to like do imitations of people from this time period, more so than just being actual, you know, people being actual characters. Um, and it was a little distracting. What do you, what do you mean by that? In you just, just, just through the accents? Like, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, yeah, I think it's like the, the 40s voice and like the, even the writing a little bit, like the the back and forth that they're having, like the really quick banter and everything. That's like a... 40s screwball comedy right it's out of like that golden age of hollywood type um mm -hmm. you know it had that type of feel to it and obviously this part of the movie is in black and white as well um but it just felt it just rang a little false to me uh i guess it it, it didn't quite have like the the zip the authenticity that i was hoping for um, that I think, you know, you see in, in a lot of the rest of the movie, I just felt like it was trying a little bit too hard. Um, and the performances, you know, to some extent too, to, you know, be like, hey, it's the 1940s, you know, don't you see, 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 um, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it, thankfully, it ironed itself out quickly. And it didn't distract me too much from what was going on. And I do think the performances are are pretty strong in the second half of the movie in particular, I think um carrie mulligan a lot of her you know uh nonverbal stuff is really strong in the movie because there's multiple scenes of her watching lenny because that is a lot of you know sort of her arc if you will in this movie is you know something that we've seen you know in a, again in in a fair number of, of biopics is kind of this idea of oh you have the great man and then behind the great man there is you know, the woman, there is the wife. And that's the Carrie Mulligan character here, obviously. And um, so we are seeing a lot of how um, Leonard Bernstein's actions and egotism, narcissism, whatever, um, his harmful behavior is affecting her and not always through her words, right? Sometimes it's just her reactions. And um, I think there's some really strong moments in that. I mean, yeah, the scene that you're mentioning in the cathedral, um, I think for for both of their performances might be a, a standout because I, I mean, you know, you're really captivated by watching Cooper's conduction during this scene. I mean, he's and during the closing credits, they show Leonard Bernstein actually conducting. And, you know, you can see that he studied Bernstein very closely in his um, performance. And, you know, he's just very um, captivating again to to watch. and then i love you know at the end towards the end of the performance the camera pans over and we see that felicia has been sitting there the whole time um on the side of the the stage is what it seems kind of her normal post if you will um and this is at a time in the movie when um you know their their relationship is really at a crossroads right like felicia has 
kind of, yeah. you know, shut him out. Like, well, quite literally shut him out of the hotel room on, on Thanksgiving, you know, not long before this. Um, and, you know, suddenly you see there, you know, in her face and everything that she's she's seen the the Bernstein, that she's seen the Lenny that, you know, maybe she once fell in love with and um, that she still has these feelings for, despite how hurtful that he can he can be. And Cooper, you know, his performance, I think, um, you know, he does have that magnetism, that charisma that Leonard Bernstein obviously had. Um, and I think he uses that, you know, to, to your point, mostly for, you know, unlikability in the movie, right? Like he's just his gregariousness. It starts to grate on you. Not not long into the movie, honestly, and particularly, you know, when he is interacting with men at these parties there's this character of tommy that appears and ends up being playing a very significant um role as sort of a you know lover of uh bernstein um and you know just watching how blatant he is with all of that when his wife is you know normally there as well i'm witnessing all of this um i think he captures all of that toxicity well i mean your eyes are definitely glued to him during these scenes which is why you know i I go back and forth a little bit and thinking about you know you're mentioning carrie mulligan is the top build person in this movie um and like it, it it does seem at times like the movie wants to be um about felicia and you know maybe this is by design but it just can't help but feel overpowered by the Bernstein character at almost every turn. Like I said, maybe this is by design, but you I know, think it I, is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I, I, I can't help but feel that Felicia does get a little bit of a short shrift at times because you know the movie is really focused around Bernstein, and I wanted to see her break out a little bit more from within his orbit, understand her a little bit outside the context of this relationship, and I don't know that we get that except maybe flickers of it in one or two scenes, like the lunch scene where she's with. Uh, I think that's more than a flicker. Right? I mean, I think that's like a pretty yeah. inter like key scene in the film for under. They're still talking. A, yeah. Her. They're still talking about Burns. I don't know. Maybe I'm being like uh annoying Bechdel test guy over here or something that's been like, I wanted to talk of, about something other than Leonard Bernstein, you know, in, in this movie. But, uh-huh. um, but I, I just yeah, but I, I mean, maybe I, I think part of the problem character. is that like, right. Like she, for the most part, she gave up, she gave up trying to really pursue Being a lot of her career. And then she, and part of that lunch team is talking about how the fact that she is branching out, like she is going back to her career. She is doing these things and she's going on this date with this person who wants to be introduced to someone else. Like, like to me, it feels like you, I can, I hear what you're saying. If you're saying maybe, maybe there could have been even more of that. I, mm-hmm. I get that. But to say that it doesn't let her do that. I feel like that's a bit unfair to the film because I think that's a, a pretty important part when you see her just getting so fed up with Leonard in the middle of the film after the thanks, like after the Thanksgiving day parade scene, after he, you know, she shuts him out of the hotel, et cetera. So it feels like the frustration is rising and she is sort of becoming her own person again. You know, the film doesn't, unlike Priscilla, the film doesn't stop there. The relationship keeps going, but I just felt like, there were times when I was disconnected from what the movie was telling me that this character was feeling like there's this argument scene, right. Which, um, takes place on Thanksgiving. Um, 
which by the way, is a hilarious moment in a in a movie that is otherwise not not really funny, not really a comedy. But um anyway. that's pretty good though. Yeah. Um but where she says to him, and this is kind of you know a repeated line that again she comes back and and recants on it after the London performance. So she says, You have hate in your heart, right to him. And I was just yeah. like, I'm I was I just struggled with that line because I thought, you know, Bernstein has a lot of problems that they have highlighted here in this movie. And like I understand her being completely done with him, but like that line, like that wasn't really like what I was getting. Like he has hate in his heart. Like what exactly is she trying to to say there? I felt like I was missing something as far as her internal, you know, monologue of what she is seeing. Because you know, I, I see her seeing, yes, he's flirting with these other men. He's, you know, uh, he's diving into his work more. He's spending so much time on his work. He's not paying attention to her, this type of stuff. But does that go as far as to say he has hate in his heart? It just felt like a weird way to express what, at least my perception of what she was feeling in that moment. But, but I almost think that that makes her more human, right? Like, I totally hear what you're saying. And my response to that is... <laughs> that's that is the nature of their relationship is what like the anger and the frustration that she's feeling isn't necessarily like it's being extrapolated and vocalized in a different way to this point where it's like well i don't like leonard's can almost like sort of nonplussed he's like i don't like i don't uh, what are you even saying to me right now and i think that's like part of the the complexity of their relationship is that leonard's a bad guy but they're not communicating well with each other either and and not that Felicia is as bad as him because the way she's expressing these things are unfair or whatever, but it's just like the, they weren't on the same page with each other. Right. And, and I think part of that is like, clearly it's something that she had was like fixated on this idea of like hatred, whatever that means to her, whether it means like, Oh, you have hatred for me. That's like, because of the way you treat me, whatever it might be. Like, I feel like in all these relationships that you have both romantic and, you know, with family, you say things that, sometimes are just a weird expression of what you're feeling and they don't always make like a ton of sense and and to me it just sort of read like she's so beside herself with like the way she's being treated and she's vocalizing it in this way that it maybe doesn't make a ton of sense but maybe that's also the point and yeah, like maybe then, she doesn't know how to make sense of it then i guess i just question you know it, because after the the London performance, she then says to him, you do not have hate in your heart. And I'm like, well, what has she seen now, right? Because another thing is like, mm. that I feel like the art, the creation of the art is not, not necessarily a big enough part of the movie. And, and you know, maybe that's a choice. Again, they want to make this because the relationship. The relationship, yeah. yes. But, yeah. you know, I, I could understand if we're saying, okay, well, she has seen him now in this pure form and he's conducting right like he's putting his all into the art she loves she respects yeah. the music like and everything his passion and all of that i just i don't think we got enough of that in the movie right like i just don't yeah. didn't feel like this person i uh, felicia who i understood her to be was somebody who was just like really connected with bernstein as a composer as a musician right like i mean there is the one scene okay there is the dream ballet sequence which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie actually um where she's kind of like i want to hear the music and then you know they are whisked off and they see this um yeah. scene from on the town but that scene ends up being more about bernstein's like sexuality 
that 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 idea kind of I think overpowers that scene more so more than her feeling of like oh wow so this is what he does I I love this you know uh, this is this is the you know one of the main reasons that I have feelings for this person because he puts his heart into this beautiful art and I you know respect that and I enjoy the, the admire the passion of it I just yeah. felt like I was missing something there yeah, I mean, I, I do think the the cathedral scene, the Mahler's Resurrection Symphony scene, does read like, oh, this is this is what makes you so special. This is what this is where all of your like the all the goodness of your of your of your essence goes into to in doing this, and I and I sort of see it, and I I do think it reads like that. Yeah, maybe there could have been more of it. Sure. Yeah. Well, we need the you know release release the Cooper cut. It's kind of like the Snyder cut of Rebel Moon, uh, right? Like they're releasing the Snyder cut of the film for some reason in like two or three months. And maybe they should do the same. With Really, Bradley just needed to be like 15 to 20 minutes more of like absolutely, you know, just intense conducting. Full send, yeah. Just need absolutely. to start that, yeah. I'm talking yeah. like the last scene like of Whiplash. Sure, but like 30 <laughs> minutes long. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that scene is like yeah. 10 minutes long. So yeah, just triple that, <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying there. Like it could have used more to reinforce it. I, I don't I don't disagree with that necessarily. It didn't have such a negative drag on my impression of the movie because it had already established itself as this film that was moving at a quite quick pace. Now, I can see how that might work better or worse for certain people because um, it is jumping years quite rapidly after the initial act of the film. But for me there's all of this like relationship development happening, like starting with, you know, when they're at their house for the first time in the Hamptons and he's like having the conversation with his daughter about like the rumors that she's heard at, mm -hmm. at um, Tanglewood or, or whatever. And there's the, and then, you know, then it goes to Thanksgiving, then it goes to the hotel scene. Then it, like it had sort of established itself as moving quickly. And I had gotten used to it by the point where there's this big, almost pause in the film because there's this seven, eight minute scene, whatever it is of him conducting. And, and that is sort of the crescendo of the whole thing. So I, look, I, I would have loved to have seen more of that. If the film was two and a half hours instead of two hours and 10 minutes, and you get 20 minutes more of the, of the art element that you're talking about, not just saying him conducting, but the creation of the art that you're saying, I think that that sort of certainly just, worked with the film. Yeah. Again, I just think, you know, maybe the overarching issue is kind of that other themes sort of overpower these ideas in the movie and, and you know in particular i think the stuff about leonard's sexuality is really the you know driving force i think from a thematic perspective in this movie you're talking about it there with the scene where he speaks with with jamie his daughter about the yeah. rumors that she's hearing and this whole again the the dream ballet sequence kind of being his revelation to her that he is you know bisexual and he you know is attracted to men and then i just i did think that that was handled pretty well right like i think it's very subtle the ways that like you know it slowly starts to impact everything to the point where it, re it you know it reaches this this um scene with jamie and they have a conversation beforehand him and felicia and and she's like you know you better not tell her the truth right and you know you sit there and you realize well there's never been like a big scene in the movie where they're like 
oh, okay, so you're, you know, this is who you are, and we're going to have to shake hands and agree that we're going to have a relationship and a marriage in spite of all that because we have children and we have, you know, uh, you have your career and it's just better for both of us that we continue to be married or whatever. I like that it doesn't give us all that, right? Like, I, I like that it, it trusts the audience to some extent to sort of put the pieces together. I do think that's one area maybe where the, the, the puzzle works because they they trickle it out to you to such a uh, an extent that it does arrive at its logical conclusion. But I just felt like I wish that the care that was put into that part of the movie was maybe, you know, put into some of the other threads for me. Yeah. And I think all that's to say, I realized that uh, I never actually said my piece on Cooper and Mulligan, but I think what you're saying around the charisma and the sort of force of will that, that Cooper brings to the performance is really remarkable. And I, as much as he does sort of tower over everyone else in the film, I still think that Carrie Mulligan brings a really strong willed performance to this as well, because it's very hard, I think, to go toe to toe with Cooper as Bernstein in, in this movie, in those scenes. But I think in, in some of the bigger and even some of the quieter scenes, there's a couple scenes at their home in the Hamptons. There's the Thanksgiving scene in their apartment on the Upper West Side in New York with the Snoopy, uh, the parade bit. Um, I think those scenes that she does go toe to toe with him, she's not necessarily bringing her energy up to his level, but she's bringing her own energy to the performance. And I found that to be very effective um, and really worked quite well for me. And so I think both of them do give really strong performances. But I, I, th I feel like we're starting to to pivot the direction of some of the tropes that you were alluding to earlier how some of the characters are maybe a little bit thin. One thing that I do want to say before I, I want to hear more about your thoughts on that is I think one of the ways where this film really did stand out for me is actually the fact that it has a coda on the film pretty much after the relate, like ostensibly the relationship between Bernstein and Felicia Montenegro ends with her passing in, uh, I think it's like the late seventies from when she dies from cancer, her bout with cancer. And I think the fact that the film doesn't, I think a lot of biopics might stop there. Like it might cut there. It might go back to the interview where he's talking about how much he misses her or whatever and in there. But instead there's this five to 10 minute sequence where it shows you him, you know, five, 10 years down the road, still doing his song and dance, teaching at Tanglewood, et cetera, and having these dalliances with much younger, either pupils or, um, you know, up and coming conductors, not unlike, you know, Lydia Tarr, Lydia Tarr uh, from, yeah. the, from the film Tarr last year. But I, I think the fact that it, it shows you that he hasn't changed, right? That he <clears throat> continues to have this, like, he has this very profound series of months or year, whatever it might've been, where he was reconnected with his family, reconnected with his wife. But ultimately, like, he still is this sort of maybe rotten, a little bit rotten person at his core, speaking to the hatred that might have existed there where he's doing all these things. He's very selfish, very self-centered, not necessarily taking into account how his actions affect his family or other people. And I think the film puts that in front of you and says, what do you think of this person? Like, he's like, what do you think of this? Because he's been able to do all these things like the, the symphony, the conducting that he did in, in London and the other works that you see him do on, you know, in the film and in his career, but he's still acting in this way. That's, you know, fairly deplorable, if not extremely deplorable. And I think that that's maybe actually where the, like, the depth of character comes into play there, that it's not some service level job. It's showing you that, like, 
this great relationship and romance that drove a lot of his life, it didn't, it wasn't a cure for like maybe some of the maladies that he experienced and whether like, whether you call that infidelity, whether you call that, you know, like however you want to position or frame that, I think it is where one of the strengths of the film comes out for me. But I do want to let you talk a little bit more about how you thought the character, the characters of either Bernstein or, or Felicia were thinner or the certain tropes that it explored. I mean, I guess with, with what you're saying there, my, my issue and the thing that I'm struggling with is just, I hear you on all that, but these, these maladies and negative qualities about Leonard Bernstein, where do they come from? I guess is the thing that I am still trying to parse. Is it, is it simply right that it comes from his, his desire to be great, right? To produce great art. Is that what desire to I think it's desire to be loved by the people around him, right? Right, but I, I guess how how exactly does that extend to him being in you know uh, cheating on his wife, you know, having infidelity with his wife, and how does that extend to some of the behaviors that we see in this movie? I guess I don't see what. Exactly the cause and effect relationship that is going on here. Like I, I, it just you know that that's when I when I say it's thin, it just feels like, yeah, okay, he's an artist, he's a great man, right? And these are sort of the pitfalls that a lot of these great men have. I wanted to understand something deeper about where does the movie, where does Bradley Cooper feel like Leonard Bernstein went wrong, so to speak. You know where where did kind of all this start, and I, and I feel like we didn't have enough of that, and maybe that's mm. some of the stuff that I struggle with with the Leonard character. As far as Felicia is concerned, you know, I've I've expressed some of the issues that I I've yeah. had just moments where I felt like I don't I I was disconnected with what she was saying, and like maybe even understanding what the movie was trying to get me to think, but just not feeling like it really justified that, and you know, even towards the end. When she's suffering from cancer, she has a scene with Jamie again with Maya Hawk, and she says, like, you know, it's just important. That the most important thing is, you know, that you're sensitive to other people's what what they're going through. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Kindness, you know, kindness is the most important thing. And it was just like, again, to me, it was a very sort of trite, like statement that she was making and i wasn't quite sure where that was coming from you know like mm -hmm. has this been the driving force of everything that she has done in this movie is it just the fact that she is kind and that's what has led her you know into this situation and you know caused her pain but also caused her joy I mean, you know is that why she's still with leonard bernstein after all this time is it just because she's being kind to him um uh, just just moments like that that i felt like could have been explored on a deeper level and that the yeah. movie can't really explore because it's trying to cover a lot of ground a lot of years e even though it is you know you're right it's hyper focused on the relationship mm -hmm. you know it's covering a lot of of territory in that relationship yeah on the on the burns on the bernstein front I, I, yeah i guess i just didn't feel like I, I was missing dots getting connected on the character development. Like I felt that his character was driven by this desire to 
have the adoration and be attracted or be attractive to other people and be liked by other people. I think there's, for me, I like, I, I sort of think about this conversation that he's having at the, I forget which, you know, other famous musician who he's at this estate basically in either upstate New York or Long Island or somewhere with Felicia and a couple other, I think, friends. And they're having this conversation about how he could be the first great American composer if he stopped doing theater, if he stopped doing all these other things and focus. And I think like the thesis of the film is that like, whether you think it's right or wrong, like Bernstein was an incredible talent who had a passion for music of different varieties. When you think about opera, when you think about traditional classical music, when you think about theater, but um, he wasn't really like understood necessarily by his like peers in certain areas, like this one where these other, these other composers, these other classical musicians are saying that you need to focus. And he was distracted from the work that he was doing. And I even say, you could say maybe those distractions are the reason why he did these other, other things like, like writing West Side Story, like doing Candide, like, et cetera, et cetera, because he wanted to be popular. He wanted to be pop in the sense like he he had this desire to be known and to be liked by people and that's where the infidelities come from and that's what if you whether you think that held him back or not is i think a determination of the audience but these are the reasons why he decided to go a different path than someone like bach or brahms or mozart or whoever right and i think that was like the great thesis of the film and that i think i find interesting the film doesn't necessarily give you an answer because i think it leaves it up to you to decide whether that mattered but i think it ultimately then focuses some of that energy through the relationship of you see the like his distractions in some ways it worked for his relationship like it it the fact that he did this dream ballet the fact that he's doing this theater right there's all these things that that felicia finds very appealing about him but these distractions and his like his sentiment his sentiment that he wants to be liked and adored by other people to the extent that he is literally cheating on his wife with other people um you know for that sort of that intense emotion and that romance that he must feel as a part of that and that desire to be admired in that way i think that is you know what you could call that another shortcoming in him as a person as an artist whatever and i think that the film thinks that those all those things are tied together and felicia is this really interesting almost exception to these distractions right like she's the one thing that he actually focused on for decades of his life as opposed to all these distractions this way, that way, all of the other directions. And the fact that, you know, Felicia maybe could have been explored more. I think to your point about the scene when she has cancer, this kindness, I I also agree that the film could have explored a little bit more around that idea and maybe exactly what that means. Maybe I need to rewatch the film. I've only watched the film like once a month ago, basically. So I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but I, I, I think that to the extent that Felicia is still there in the relationship and still providing this anchor point, Right, like he's clearly managed to convince her enough of his of his commitment over time, you know, some more than others. And I'm sure there's some momentum in the fact that you have three kids, that you have all of this life together, because they're very much seen as a couple, that it made it um, difficult. But I, I do think that the film is ultimately successful. Maybe it could have explored Felicia more. I do agree with you on that point and that you were making. But ultimately, I think the the back and forth of all these different sort of very rapidly developing scenes over the course of the film is that even though maybe certain pieces are missing in 
for Fel on the Felicia side when the cancer um, sort of part of the film begins to unfold and, and occur. Like I I did find that emotionally quite moving as you see uh, Bernstein really struggle with that, right? Like he realized, like he's clearly struggling with these distractions and you almost see it even too when he's having the conversation with Matt Bomber's character towards the beginning of the film after he marries Felicia that he doesn't fully comprehend the impact that his like choices and decisions have on other people's lives that he doesn't really get why things are so difficult it seems like for and it almost has to have it explained to him by this character of the, the difficulty and i think that it's it's so fascinating when you see him reckon with that and even more personal relationship that he has with with felicia in, in that in the third act of the film so i i really liked the character development from that from that front maybe again not a perfect film uh, and i do think that it could have used a little bit more here and there in certain places but overall still was effective and worked for me in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've laid out is a very plausible thesis. Um, I think I would perhaps like to revisit the film and just see, you know, do I yeah. think that the pieces of the film add up to that thesis, sure. right? Like, is, yeah. is all of that there? Because I am still, you know, struggling a little bit with that. I think that's where I... Um, had kind of came came out on you know uh, after watching the movie just a few hours ago. To be fair, yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's a it's a well made film. Certainly, I was captivated by certain sequences. Like I said, I was never bored. I just wanted yeah. the movie to kick into that third gear that I think that Bradley Cooper is capable of, and that I mean, I know Bradley Cooper is capable of because I think he got there and and a star is born um yeah and although a lot of people think the second half third act of that movie is a bit of yeah yeah i don't know uh, it's been a while since i've seen it i mean i, I would that i mean I, i'm not in that camp a noted lover of a star is born yes i mean yeah. i i very much enjoy the movie too but yeah also you know this shouldn't affect me but i did see uh another biopic last night i saw the iron claw and i felt like i mean that really was an emotional like just punches you right in the chest and so maybe um this movie isn't that type of movie like i don't think it's trying to be so between that. a star is born and the iron claw what you're saying is that is Fel felicia should have died more violently is what you're saying <laughs> is what you're saying in this movie um yeah possibly but uh yeah. no i think uh you know uh, that could have unfairly affected my you know view viewpoint on this movie just because i think um that movie's a little bit more upfront with its emotion. But yeah, I mean, it's a good movie. I just wanted it to be a great movie. Fair enough. All right, I, unless there's other stuff that you'd like to talk about from a craft perspective, I think we could enter the wrap-up phase. Any any last thoughts before we do? Great music. I mean, you know, the Leonard Bernstein music yeah. is, is That Bernstein great. guy, he knew how to make some music, yeah. I guess. I love, I mean, and, and you know, you're, you're talking about all of the different mediums that he dabbled in and um, sure. They they also sprinkle that throughout the movie. I mean, you hear every different type of of mm -hmm. music that he composes, which I think is really smart. You even hear the uh, the uh, overture from uh, West Side Story, which I thought was yeah. great. When it, during the scene when they they pull up to the house and it's him and Tommy and the other some guy, other guy, yeah, um, it really adds that tension of like, 
oh man, here we go. Like the Jets and Sharks are about to clash. You know, here comes Leonard Bernstein and his like lover to come spend the weekend with him and his entire yep. family right at, at home or whatever. So it was kind of almost funny the way that that worked out. But it, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, it is. It, the music was well well utilized in the film yeah. for sure. So favorite scene or moment, Scott, from Maestro, what did you think? So I keep referencing it as the dream ballet sequence. What it really is is that scene where you've mentioned the dinner, the lunch dinner, whatever that they're Felicia and him are at with some friends. And she said, you know, they're talking about Bernstein. You know, you could be the next great American. You could be the first great American conductor yeah. if you could, you know, not do all this stuff. And she says, well, I want to hear all of it. I want to hear all. Well, we can't just leave. Well, yeah, sure we can. And they just run away and they, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, again, beautiful shot. They like run away down the lawn and like, yep. it's in, they shot. open the door yeah. and they're into the theater. Right. And yep. um, it's like a dream, but also I guess they're watching like an audition, right. Of on the town, which is, you know, the ballet that, um, that Bernstein composed. And uh, we're seeing, you know, first of all, them watching sort of with rapture um, as the dancers are performing a number. And then th these male sailors um, who are the main characters in the ballet. And then we see Bernstein um, take one of their places. And he is now, you know, dressed as a sailor. He's now doing the dance. And that's kind of the first moment where he is revealing his sexuality, if you will, to um to felicia and again carrie mulligan doing some good like nonverbal acting and stuff i thought that was a yeah <laughs> that was just a, a really you know imaginative and also emotionally compelling sequence yeah. in the movie yeah for me it's some of the some of the quieter i mean obviously it'd be very easy to say the Mahler's Resurrection Symphony at the like cathedral it'd be very easy to say that i think to be to highlight some different stuff like i did find some of the more sort of di like discussion, disagreement, argument type scenes between them to be quite effective. There is, of course, the one in their um, apartment in New York City, but there's one in the Hamptons that's a bit quieter. And I particularly like the way that it was framed. It's like this <clears throat> camera being placed down on the ground from outside the fence of their home in the Hamptons looking in. It's like unfocused, and you can, but you can see Bernstein and either Felicia or someone else, I can't remember who it is in the scene, and they're just talking, um, disagreeing, kind of arguing about it, about about something, about the relationship, about what he's been doing, who he's, why he's brought Tommy to the house for the weekend or whatever, and he's talking about, like, oh, just like, I'm, I just thought it'd be nice to have friends over or whatever. Like, he's he's going through his defensive, like, his defensive dance uh, around the oh, I'm here questions. for Jamie. Yeah, that's what he keeps saying or whatever. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I just sort of loved that scene because that sort of it captures really effectively. A, I think it's like really interestingly framed and and how distant it is from what's actually occurring. But two, it shows you how the tension, even though it's just this sort of almost fast forward years of their life, um, and it's now in color. It's this moment where you realize that there's a lot of tension in this relationship already and it's about to rise and mount even more. So I really liked that scene a lot as, as a bit of a quieter scene, as opposed to some of the louder spectacle type scenes in the film. Yeah. Out of 10, Scott, what are you giving Maestro? I gave it a 6.8. It's a good movie. Um, I, you know, wish it had gotten to that upper echelon more often for me, 
but um, sure. it's worth a watch. I definitely think it's worth a watch. And, you know, Bradley Cooper, I'm still very interested to see what he does next as a director. Yeah. 8.7 for me. I think it's a really strong film. I look forward to watching this again on Netflix when it releases in the next few days, if it hasn't already by the time this podcast releases. And definitely feels like one of those movies that will be uh, interesting to revisit. Like A Star is Born. I, I've been meaning to rewatch that one recently as well. Yeah. I watched it a couple times when it first came out. But, uh, you know, as skeptical as I may have been over the years earlier on in Bradley Cooper's acting career, I think that he's really putting to bed any any you know, sophomore slump concern that there might have been in his directing career. So it seems like he's on a safe track in that respect. But that should do it for our discussion of Maestro. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the uh, a more lighthearted affair. I think it's fair to say that is Paul King's Wonka. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Sun Like It Scott. As mentioned before the break, our second review is Wonka, the musical fantasy film written and directed by Paddington writer-director Paul King, starring Timothy Chalamet in the titular role of Willy Wonka. Wonka tells the early days in the enterprising chocolatier's life when he first arrives in Europe seeking to establish his chocolate shop and his fortune at the Galleries Gourmet. After quickly burning through his limited savings, he falls victim to a scam run by the owner of a local boarding house called Mrs. Scrubbits, uh, a character played by Olivia Coleman, and her accomplice and sometimes lover, Bleacher, played by Tom Davis. Impressed into working slave-like hours in Mrs. Scrubbits' operation, Wonka befriends Orphan Noodle, played by Calla Lane, Accountant Abacus Crunch, played by Jim Carter, and several other fellow indentured servants and must find a way to use his new alliances and his own ingenuity in chocolate making to outsmart the local chocolate cartel, who has enlisted the chief of police, played by Keegan-Michael Key, to blackball Wonka from selling chocolates and opening his own storefront, and thereby disrupting their own vulture capitalist monopoly on the chocolate in the town. Scott, did you find the wiles and the charms of Chalamet's Wonka to be arresting and enjoyable? Or was it ultimately boring and a bit trite compared to the original Charlie and the, Choc Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder, as well as Johnny Depp and Tim Burton's follow-up in the 2000s? Yeah, I mean, so I'm not a Willy Wonka guy. I mean, not there's a Wonka people head. There. Yeah, not I'm not a Wonka, a Wonka head. head. Um, a Wonka I, Wonk? Can we call it? Is that the right way to, to, to describe them? <laughs> yeah, actually, that probably is. Yeah. But, you know, there's some people out there who swear by... Um, you know, the original film in particular. I think sure. the Tim Burton one is pretty hated, but uh, the, you know, the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, um, you know, is a childhood favorite for many people. I wasn't one of those people. I oh, saw right. Did I, did, I mix, did I mix them up? Willy Wonka. Yeah, yeah Charlie the is the, Tim is the original. One. But, but, okay, but yeah, Charlie yeah. is the name of the book, actually. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is the name. Yeah, of the I book. think that's why I got it mixed but, up. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Um, so, but I, I was not one of those people. So, you know, the prospect of seeing a film about how Willie became Wonka, you know, is not yeah. something the famous that tagline, yeah, necessarily gets my my engines going. 
but um, the prospects of a film starring Timothy Chalamet that is directed by Paul, Paul King of Paddington fame, as you mentioned, um, that gets me a little more excited uh, because I actually haven't seen the first Paddington, but Paddington 2, I echo you know, the praise that everyone levies on that film. Uh, it's wonderful. And, um, you know, I, I, I went into this hoping that it would just be a nice little Christmas treat. Uh, and you know what, Scott? It is. Uh, it's a delightful film. And I don't know if this movie is a great Willy Wonka prequel, Willy Wonka origin story, whatever. I don't care, frankly, uh, because, again, I'm not not a Wonka head. I'm not here, um, you know, trying to, to parcel the details of this. And I obviously, you know, I do know, you know, as do many that the Willy Wonka and the Chalk Factory and, and the Tim Burton version as well, you know, are, are a little dark also. I think that's something that people, yeah. you know, kind of this overlook, film, right? Not so much. Not, a, not in yeah, the slightest, yeah. right? Uh, this movie yeah. doesn't have a hint of darkness to it. Um, it is really just trying to be a nice christmas confection right a movie right. that you can take your whole family to on christmas i mean they they literally call it a confection by paul king yeah it's like one of the cards that's true that's true they, I, I forgot about yeah. that and i did roll my eyes at that when it first came yeah. on the screen but uh you know uh, it's it's better than saying than argyle saying it's from the twisted mind of matthew vaughn uh yeah, so, that's crazy dude that's crazy um but anyway um yeah, this movie, it absolutely gets the job done. It reminded me of something like Mary Poppins Returns, for example, which we had a few years ago at Christmas. Um, I think just I think sort this of one's a, a, maybe a little better than that. Maybe. I think it probably is, too. But, yeah. you know, this sort of nostalgia for a, a childhood favorite for a lot of people. You have, you know, the younger, hipper actor taking over in the role. And um, Emily, you know, Emily Blunt it, it, appreciates that that from you. Yeah. Well, sure. And, uh, yeah. and you know, just just trying to be this very sort of uplifting, positive, charming family film. And uh, I was I was delighted, you know, I, for a lot of the movie's running time, I was just kind of like, this is nice. You know, this is pleasant. I'm having a, a fine sure. time watching this movie. Um, yeah. I'm not offended really by anything. There's a couple of, you know, comedic things which don't work, but that's just me also. And then actually in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, when they really dial in on the emotional stuff, and this kind of happens in Paddington too as well, I was like surprised at how like touched I was by, you know, a couple of the different scenes that happened towards the end of this movie. Uh, and I'm not even sure whether the movie necessarily earns like that sort of reaction for me, but I was like, wow, like that was actually pretty you know warm and winning in the end like i actually felt something which i i wasn't necessarily expecting when i went to this movie i think timothy chalamet crushes it no surprise to me i'm a big fan of his and everything that he's done everything that i've seen uh because i haven't seen you know don't look up but um anyway uh i i have seen you know the majority of his good films um and i think i think he's a movie star like i really do and i think He's able to carry this movie so far um, with his charisma alone. And, uh, you know, the supporting cast has some nice performances as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think this is this is kind of about him. The movie doesn't work without him. And, uh, you know, if there were any doubts about him being able to embody this iconic role, I think he he erases those. So um, it's it's a, a 
really good movie. I mean, I, I ended up enjoying it quite a bit more than I was, I thought, um, you know, just go in with your expectations set properly. And I think you'll have a great time. Go in with your expectations set as a, a properly mid film and you'll be happy with what you get. No, it's better than mid. It is better than mid. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's better than mid. It, it, it's maybe it clears the bar on its charm. I think mainly more than anything, but I do think that the film is, it really is the kind of movie I'll be like, here. Let me be honest with you. I think this film is, is a Netflix movie. That's I think that it's funny because Maestro is probably <laughs> wow. not a Netflix movie. And I think this film is, but it's a, it, it's like the good version of that movie, right? Like it, it has a star that you recognize in Timothy Chalamet. You turn it on for that. But frankly, the film's not too concerned whether you're actually paying attention. Like you're just there. Like there's the vibes are good. It's charming. Right. But I don't actually think that there's, you talk about like performances that get the job done. Like I'm not sure how many performances in this movie get the job done. Olivia Coleman is really funny in this sure. film, and some people are chewing the scenery a little bit here and there. But Timothy Chalamet gives a good performance. But the but the this character is like so bland. I'll be honest. Like I think Wonka is like such a bland character in this movie, and the fact that he's just sort of like a ho hum idiot, like illiterate, like he literally can't read. As he yeah. walks through, yet he's capable of these like incredible feats of magic and chocolateering. It's like kind of crazy. Um, it's magic. And I, I just, it, sure, sure, it's magic. Um, I, which is fine. It's like not a, like I don't, I don't really, I don't aim all that in like this hyper negative way, right? It's just to say that this film, I think, decided from the outset that it was going to be not boring because I wasn't ever bored in the film. But it was going to be very bland, and its ceiling was going to be, I think, actually kind of low. But I think it hits its ceiling. Yeah. But I'm not sure with this sort of approach in making the film, like they're not trying to achieve very much in this movie. And I don't think that is like some massive condemnation of the film because I did have a good enough time while watching it. But I guess the emotional point here, and I'm not sure if you're talking about his relationship with his mom or exactly what you're referring Somewhere. to yeah. in the film. That's part of it. That's I think that's it, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that is like back burner to infinity in this film. Oh, like, it, oh it, like and that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying in the, in the sense that, <laughs> yeah. you know, it is, the, the movie may not earn it. I mean, I think it doesn't earn yeah. it. I, I, I agree with you, but that doesn't change the fact that when this moment happens at the end of the film, I like my heartstrings were tugged, you know, maybe that's just yeah. me being a softie, but uh, yeah, it, did, it didn't actually, work that way for me. The but. scene following that one is an even better scene, in my opinion, from an emotional perspective. But we can we don't have to spoil the whole thing that yeah, necessarily involving Am the I character of Noodle, the involving the character of okay. Noodle, who is sure. the young girl that he befriends. Sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I think I think that I'm not going to sit here and say I wanted the film to have more edge because I don't really know if I wanted the film to have anything. To be honest, like I can't sit here and be like, oh, I wanted a five star Wonka. I mean, I did, yeah. but like I didn't know. I, I probably wasn't going to get that ever. Um, but yeah, for, it was a good time. Like my mom it and wasn't I, I bad. Went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went and saw this movie with my mom. It was, you know, it's right. just a hair under two hours. And we had a good time watching it. I, am I going to forget this like literally by the time we have our next episode? Probably. Like I, I do think it's a very forgettable outing because I don't think very much is happening. But I do think that we need these kinds of movies. I think Netflix is the is the proprietor that is more, most often giving you these types of very forgettable movies. That's not to say that I think it 
should be on Netflix. I just think that this is sort of what we are think you, of as a Netflix. It's like the good version a, of a Netflix movie these days. Enola Holmes level uh, joint here. I do think it has that kind of vibe. Yeah, I do. I do think yeah. it has that kind of vibe of a film. And also, I will say, this is not a Netflix movie, but one of the, the film that this actually reminded me the most of was Cruella when I was watching it. Another yeah. sort of prequel to a to a film that introduces you to a, a kind of a different version of the character. I think Cruella is mm-hmm. a better movie than this, personally. I liked Cruella quite a bit back in, what, 2021 when that movie came out. But I, I was thinking a little bit about, because it's like, you know, a vaguely, like, metropolitan setting that's sort of ambiguous about is it paris it's some european setting right for for yeah, Cruella, it's, know, paris. So, yeah. so, it's something like that and you know this is obviously a vaguely european setting as well i think that film again not to be a bit trite but like that film has a little bit more of an edge because i think emma stone gave is giving a more interesting performance than timothy chalamet here but i think that chalamet is has understood the assignment and it's fine i think the music like i'm not super familiar with the other two um, Willy Wonka movies, either the Tim Burton version or the original from what the sixties or whatever. But I, the music's like not a highlight of the film for me. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's not a highlight yeah. or a low light in my opinion. Sure. Like, yeah. It, that's a fair way is, to put it. Yeah. In the, in the moment when I'm watching it, I'm like, these songs are fine. You know, I, I these are They're pleasant. Fine. It's yeah. not, it's not like I'm not going to hum this tomorrow or anything to me. Yeah. yeah. But then when I leave the theater, I'm like, like I'm sitting here. Yeah, it's been a week since I've seen it more than a week. And I'm like, yeah. can I remember, you know, a couple of the songs? Probably not. Like I can remember yeah. it's chocolate or whatever that they <laughs> sing multiple times in the movie. Well, you can, you can remember the song from the original Charlotte and the Chocolate. Yes. Pure, right? pure imagination. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But you know, they're just riffing that at the end of the film, which is fine. The sure. Wrong which that, is but... good. Again, I, I, it, yeah. it got me. <laughs> it got you. <laughs> No, I'm not gonna say I was like sobbing in the theater watching Wonka. You're I sobbing meant... as like as like Hugh Grant's Oompa Loompa. Yeah, <laughs> one of these shallow no, walking through this imaginary. It was factor. a nice, nice nostalgic, you know, tug on the heartstring it's for something that I'm not even nostalgic for. So that's what's <laughs> yeah. funny about it. That's the best part. Like neither of us really. Even I do like the song. I mean, it's it's a nice song. Yeah. No, it's a good song. Um, yeah, and I think the whole like. You know, is it say, it's saying something kind of interesting, I think, about setting. And I haven't seen the Paddington movies, although I'm thinking about watching both of them um, in the next, like, week week or two because I've heard so many good things about them for so long. And at least the first one's on Netflix. I don't know if the second one is or not right now. So I'm going to maybe try to watch those. But I think one of the things that this film, besides its, like, sort of charm and charisma that it shares with Paddington is that it does have this sort of, like, a thematic core that's still going on. Like, I think one of the interesting things about this film is that although it's it's played to an extent that's sign of cheesy or campy at times like this commentary on like capitalism that's capitalism, happening in the film yeah is actually quite pointed i think yeah <laughs> quite and quite negative the idea of and, these three p individuals right who are just sort yeah. of colluding together They're colluding to and monopolizing the market. industry yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's like super. I mean, I I kind of think that's like the most effective and most well done part of the film. If I'm, which is like kind of crazy to say. I think about like a Wonka yeah. musical. Uh, um, I I kind of think that's true, and and I want, and I feel like I've heard not obviously to the same extent, but Paddington has like a similar sort of con- conceit yes. to it to how it is how it how its themes are framed, and I'm I'm interested by that because I think widely speaking, Paddington is considered to be. Both of them are considered to be very strong films. So I'm interested to check those out because I thought that that was actually pretty well done 
in this one. And, and yeah, some of the jokes worked, some of some of them didn't, but that's, you know, every, that's every film, right? Like you, not all the jokes are going to work. And if they do, then maybe something, something weird's going on. I don't know, but I enjoyed the film. It's an average movie, but average, like we need average movies. I don't, I don't think being an average movie is necessarily a bad thing. Um, we, we need all types. And I think that this, it checks a box and would I recommend this to other people? Uh, sure. Absolutely. Just like I recommended Mary Poppins returns to cite that film. Um, yeah. Did I think Mary Poppins returns is a great movie? No, I did not, but I, it was certainly recommendable for this kind of fare. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So Timothy Chalamet, not quite Gene Wilder, I think it must be said. Part of that is probably because uh, this character is certainly not positioned with the dark, the darker side of, um, I don't know, enslaving Oompa Loompas to work in their factory. Uh, but what did you think of Chalamet's performance? I already talked a little bit about how I thought it was a bit bland, not necessarily his fault. I think it is more of the framing of the character as this almost like kind of almost puppy dog like creature at times, like the way he just sort of wanders through the world, very trusting golden of retriever, others. Yeah. yeah, very golden retriever. That's a good way to put it. Did you see it differently? What did you think of Chalamet's performance in this in this Wonka character? I just think he's, you know, I didn't really overthink it as far as, you know, the sure. the character's layers or anything. I enjoy watching Timothy Chalamet on the screen. I do think he has a few moments of like Pure weirdness a little bit. Well, where he kind of just goes goblin mode for no reason. <laughs> and like, you know, will just like raise his volume or like laugh really loudly or something like that. Just like kind of out of nowhere in a way that just like catches your attention. You know, it's like, you know, you're just expecting one sort of flat tone or whatever for uh, uh, over the course of a scene. And then all of a sudden he'll do something to kind of like snap you out of that. But I think, you know, that's some, some good actor stuff there, but mostly I just think, yeah, he's got the juice, right? He has the movie star juice. And so many people talk nowadays about, there are no more movie stars anymore, which I don't agree with. I think there are multiple examples that you could name, but I think Timothy Chalamet is one of them. I think that he proves it here. This movie's doing pretty well at the box office, I think, from what I've seen. Um, you know, so I think he does have the, you know, not I'm not not just talking about from an acting perspective, from a you know the quality of his performance and his talent, but I do think he has some pull as far as getting people to go watch a movie in theaters that maybe they wouldn't otherwise watch. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, you know, this isn't a movie where I'm going to do hard analysis on the performances or anything. I just think uh, he's a lot of fun. He sings pretty well, although his singing feels, you know, it's very like studio engineered, right? Like there's no live singing or anything going on in this movie. I think the, um, the auto tune was at work. I will say. Yeah. They were in the studio, but, uh, but he sells it, right? He sells it. And I thought, yeah. He, he, you know, again, he's fun. He had a nice relationship with Noodle, right? I think he plays off of everyone else in the supporting cast. Nice. He just, he has that twinkle in his eye and he doesn't lose it over the course of the movie. Yeah, he does seem like one of, you know, sort of every time we talk about him, I think we talk about how he just sort of, he is one of those young up and coming stars. I mean, it's, it's hard to call him up and coming anymore. It feels like he has yeah. a place in the existing actors uh rushmore of like who are you going to turn to to cast your younger male actor movie you know maybe paul mescal is on a trajectory to maybe get up there with him if, if gladiator etc cetera, etc cetera, is is successful 
for him, but it, it really does feel like it's it's Chalamet's game. Maybe Austin Butler is is trending his direction as well. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I was thinking this the other day. I, I was just going on a walk through the neighborhood, and I was like, Austin Butler should be Indiana Jones. I was just like, save someone, save me. Like we need more Indiana. I was I was going. Through I mean, a weird, I a weird I movie. don't know, man. Are we not uh, more on the Jacob Elordi train after seeing his Elvis? Uh, you know, versus Austin Butler's Elvis. I well, I don't think about either of those movies very much so okay it's fine. fair enough uh, i don't think about elvis i think is, is the main thing i think about the roman well, empire yes. a lot more than i think about elvis more than you think about tell you that much. Yeah. um but no that's fair i liked both jake i mean i liked both jacob elordi and austin butler as as yeah. elvis i thought they they brought different things to the role um and frankly i think that both of done the other's role i don't think austin butler could have done what jacob elordi did and i don't think jacob elordi could have done what austin butler did um so that yeah, I mean, I think Alordi has such a, I mean, he's like cultivated a, a really dark vibe about every character that he plays, and the vibes are bad with Jacob Alordi. I'm gonna put it that way. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's not. I don't mean that about him. Obviously, I don't have any opinion about him as a person. But <laughs> when he's playing a character in a film, I haven't seen Saltburn yet, uh, but I have a feeling that uh, the vibes are bad in that one too. I think so. So yeah, we'll leave I it think that, everything but... surrounding that movie is bad, but yeah. Yeah, I think Chalamet, but to your point, I think Chalamet, he understands the assignment, he does the assignment, and he accomplishes what he's supposed to. I think for me, it's really the supporting cast where the film sort of like wins or loses. As I mentioned already, Olivia Coleman. I find it really interesting what Olivia Coleman signs up to do and, and how she has some fun when she acts, is what I'm going to say. Like the fact that she was in spoilers for the bear, I guess, one, like two scenes of one the bear. Episode. Yeah, two scenes of one episode in The Bear. And then she's doing like random TV shows with like Will Sharp, who's like a, like, you know, almost like a surrealist director. And he's doing, and she's now doing, you know, a, a pantomime villain type role. And in, in this film, she's doing the voice of one of like the villains in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish last year. Like she's, ma- she's Listen, making some really interesting I, choices. I think we have probably both been on record as saying that pretty much everything would be improved by Olivia Coleman's presence. Sure. And yeah. so I think she is testing our theory by like just being in literally everything. And, and uh, I think she's kind of undefeated. At it. Yeah. Success, yeah, yeah. 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 Empire of light, man. What a great film that she, <laughs> she was in. Oh, why did you remind me that that was a film? Cause I did not remember that that existed until now. Yeah. And she's in, and, and uh, clearly she's enjoying working with Paul King because I think she's in Paddington in Peru or whatever, the next Paddington movie. Oh, okay. Um, which I guess I to don't actually fair, know if that's, if that's to Paul be fair, King Empire of Light would not have been better with somebody else in the lead role. So, you know, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to blame her. I agree. Yeah. I think that Lydia <laughs> Coleman made that movie better. And unfortunately, yeah. it wasn't a very good movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I feel that way about the television shows that I've seen her in most recently, too. Like I was mentioning the sort of surrealist Will Sharp television show that she was in that was called landscapers um i didn't like that tv show very much but i thought she was good in it and i'm i think that she does have a an element of that uh, about her i think she's ultimately kind of after the opening act of the film like she's not in the film a whole lot but i did enjoy her her presence i think some of the bigger supporting roles are obviously people like keegan michael key who is doing is making a choice uh, or at least Paul Swing King has a made a choice has made a choice for him uh, in, in this role. I think another one is Hugh Grant, who doesn't really show up till about halfway through the film, but is playing a small orange 
and green-haired Oompa Loompa man who is also as making Oompa a choice. Oompa man's men are want as, to be orange as and green hair. Yeah, it's true. He's a quarter of an inch shorter than average for an Oompa Loompa, unfortunately, but nonetheless, he is orange and green-haired still. I found I found the effects to be a little bit uh, unsettling on on yeah, the Oompa I Loompa, mean, but I did enjoy the humor uh, of that. Well, here's the thing. Everyone is saying this about the design, you know, the effects and design of um, of Hugh Grant as the Oompa Loompa. I mean, it's an Oompa Loompa, right? It's like I'm not going to sure, get too yeah. bent out of shape about Modoc looking like what he did in Ant Man and well, the Wasp, right? Because did. Yeah. it's Modoc, right? Like he looks stupid, right? Like, that's kind of the point. Oompa Loompas look weird and dumb, and like he looks like an Oompa Loompa in this you know in this movie like i don't see what the why we need to like say oh no this there could have been a better looking oompa loompa right like could have i I don't even know what people were wanting but it it did not bother me in the slightest uh yeah i it didn't i wouldn't say that it bothered me i was just like oh (laughs) that's a a weird uh yeah it's a weird look you got going on there buddy i mean look not to not to go to uh you know, silly about this, but it looks like he just got a really bad spray tan, like a really bad spray tan. Um, and he was, a, he a was bad... fun though. He was enjoyable in the, in the role. Yeah. I was really concerned that it was going, that that character was going to be a big miss comedically. Yeah. And I thought it, it was pretty fun. I thought he was pretty funny. Yeah. Much better yeah. than, you know, Keegan Michael Key, who you're mentioning as the cop who just keeps eating chocolate. Um, yeah, that was a yeah. that was a big mess for me on that. Would you? That but was, Scott, this is an important question. Would for eighteen hundred boxes of chocolate, would you have done what he did? No, because okay, I well, can't because eat all of that chocolate. I I, it, well, I like chocolate. You say that. Fine. You say that, but you haven't tried it yet. You haven't tried it. <laughs> I yet. mean, yeah, that's that's true. It's uh, there's chocolate and there's chocolate. You know, as the song goes. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I think for me, Olivia Coleman and Hugh Grant would be the standouts from the supporting cast. Was there anyone else that jumped out for, for you? No, well, not really the actors, but I will say that there is a brief gag in the movie that um, I really enjoyed involving a, a guy who works in the like uh, security booth at the zoo. So that is the co-writer of the movie. That is pl- That person is played <laughs> by, is it Simon Farnaby, who's like the co-writer with okay. Paul King? On this well, movie, he plays Basel. Yeah, his name's Basel. I just have to say, like, you know, they pranked this man multiple times in the movie by, you know, giving him this chocolate that a full like, night out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like it it uh breaks down his inhibitions, right? And he just, you know, experiences everything all at once, including he calls um his crush, right, from yeah, school. From high seems. school, yeah. Uh, high school Gwenny or Glenny yeah. or something like that, and Gwen, you know, Gwenny, uh, yeah, confesses Gwenny. his love to her and is rejected. And I just felt very sorry for this poor man because he yeah. didn't do anything wrong, right? Like he was just—he just happened to be, you know, in their way for what they needed, which was the uh, elephant, right? The giraffe's milk. Gi- giraffe. Sorry, I was like the giraffe's milk. Blank for a second. Yeah. Like which <laughs> animal was it they needed? Yes, the giraffe. And then it comes back around very nicely because first you find out that his crush is the uh, the woman who is working in like the basement vault or whatever, guarding all of the, the yeah. books and stuff for the the chocolate, you know, companies. And 
the, co- they, the, cartel, they, the chocolate cartel. They prank her with a uh, with a chocolate, which leads to her then calling him and saying, "Hey, actually, I was wrong when I rejected you." And then you know, at the end of the movie, when the the day is saved, they meet up together um, outside the the church. Right? The church, right, is where it's it's being harbored. Um, the chocolate church, yes. Yeah, Rowan Atkinson as the uh, priest also was interesting. But um, but anyway, sure. I really enjoy. It's very it's a very brief gag of the movie, but I thought they did it well, and I felt very vindicated for my guy Basil in the end because again, I sure. felt that he did nothing wrong. He didn't deserve to be pranked in this manner, um, and I'm glad that it all worked out for him in the end. Yeah, no, those are enjoyable performances. Just wanted to go on record That's... about that. <laughs> sure. What did you think of the cartel? I think this is, we haven't really talked too much, and I'm not just talking about the performances, but I sort of mentioned it as maybe one of the more effective themes in the film and, and how they sort of, again, these almost pantomime-like villains um, of the chocolate cartel, the the, the sort of trio that it, uh, of them are Arthur Slugworth, played by Patterson Joseph, uh, Matt Lucas plays Gerald Prodnose, and then uh, Felix Ficklegruber is played by Matthew Bainton. Hilarious names, by the way. These are great names. Um, what did you What did you think of the cartel? Not again. It doesn't have to be about the performances, but did that work for you as the sort of primary villain in the film? I mean, I didn't really care one way or the other about the characters, the performances. They all just kind of blended together for me. Matt Lucas is the only person that I even know of the three of them, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, they were just kind of some standard mustache twirling villains. But to your point, I do think like the thematic, um, you know, takeaway of like these the three, handling of that. Yeah. Yeah. The, these three guys collaborating, colluding, you know, to control the market and um, basically create this scenario where it's like almost impossible for there to be any competition. Right. Like because yeah. he can't get. Uh, license or whatever it is that he needs to open a chocolate shop. He needs a chocolate shop to make chocolate. He can't, yeah, he, and, yeah. he can't sell chocolate without a chocolate shop, but he can't buy a chocolate shop until he sells chocolate, until he makes money. Because he doesn't chocolate. have any money. So, yeah. yeah uh, exactly. Right. They create like this catch-22 situation. Um, so I thought all of that was, was good. That's really my only feelings about the cartel because, you know, the characters, the performances, not, not something that sit, sit with me. What did you think of the naming conventions for the fellow people who are working in Mrs. Scrubbit's basement? Abacus Crunch, so the guy who's a, a an accountant named Abacus, uh, a woman named Piper Benz. I'm not actually sure what she did in real life, so I can't remember. Uh, Larry Chucklesworth is the comedian. Thank and God we didn't Lottie get much Bell. of him in the movie, but yeah, yeah. Lottie Bell is the telephone operator, so Bell like a. You know, I thought that they were, right, yeah. they were being pretty silly with some of these characters. I'm not even sure that I processed that in the moment, but you know, that's that's fun. They they were they were cooking when they made this. So sure, I uh, I'll I'll respect them for that. What did you think of the bit where uh, they convinced Olivia Coleman's character, Mrs. Scrubbit, that uh, Bleacher was Bavarian royalty, and then he's walking around and like whatever the whatever it's suspenders, called yeah. yeah the suspenders and the it's not lederhosen but the, you know that that whole regalia. i mean yeah equivalently yeah i mean very very silly um you know i'm not gonna say that uh yeah. i laughed very much at it but 
I kind of just humphed, inhaled through my nose a little bit and, uh, you know, was like, all right, well, that's what needed to happen to move us along you to snorted. the next part of the movie. So, yeah. Yeah. Like Leonard Bernstein, you snorted. Uh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, put it this way. Let's talk about the stuff that you've actually found touching at the end. You talked about the sort of the noodle being reunited with, I think it's fair to spoil it now, her mother who, you know, she's positioned as this orphan who was taken in by Mrs. Scrubbit at the beginning of the film. But in actuality, we learn that um, her parents, or at least her mother, is alive. And she's actually related to Slugworth, one of the chocolate, uh, one of the chocolate cartel, who lied to her mother um, and told her that Noodle had died when in reality he had sent her down a laundry chute to Mrs. Scrubbit's uh, inn or, or um, boarding house. And they're reunited. And you, you said that, that that did work for you even. Maybe it didn't earn it. Maybe it did. But it did affect you nevertheless. Yeah. I mean, I like... So early in the movie, there's a moment where he like asks Noodle, you know, what is your dream? Right? Because he's big on this idea of like, you know, having a dream, being a dreamer, you know, mm -hmm. fulfilling your dreams. And she says that she wants like to live in a house with a bunch of books, right? Like a library type situation. Um, and so then this comes back around at the end of the movie when, um, when it is revealed that her mother is a librarian, right? And uh, so my first question, when, my first question was, it seems like her mother was just like right there in the same town with the rest of them. So are you like, are we meaning to believe that she never like tried to look for noodle after all this? Well, she was told that, that she had, she would, she had died. Right. Oh, uh, right. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sl then, Slugworth like, told, told the mom that yeah. noodle had died. Then yeah. she shows up and like the mom, like instantly recognized or instantly like, uh, knows that it is her which is kind of yeah. funny but um but yes it's a, a nice weird. moment because like it it bef like you find this out and then it cuts and we see like the little like drawing it's like noodles dream right and that's like yeah basically tracing the outline of the the library the right? library the at the university yeah yeah um and so i thought that that was a really like nice callback you know she gets reunited with her mother, you know, it, it does kind of tie into this small idea in the movie about like dreams and imagination, you know, being able to come true. Like if you just imagine it, it can it can come true. Uh, and yep. that, you know, is what Noodle wants to be reunited with her mom and be with all these books. So it works out. And uh, I thought that was a really nice moment. And, you know, also the previous scene, which you talked about with involving his uh, involving Willie's relationship with his mom played by Sally Hawkins in like two flashback scenes. Um, and the idea that she's she like has one of the this... first build p characters in yeah. the film. And I'm like, Oh, she's going to be in this. And then she's in two scenes. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that she has this secret to making chocolate that she's never told him what it is. And yeah. he finally, you know, unravels the, the secret at the end. And it just says, you know, that it's not about the, the, the secret is like, it's, it's about who you share the, the chocolate with, right. It's about the people. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, again, it it hits after the movie you've seen, right, where he sort of... Um, trope alert. Brings, trope alert. Yeah. <laughs> brings together this yeah. this ragtag band of misfits, right? And they, they're able to save the day in the end. So, um, you know, didn't earn it perhaps, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it didn't work on me. 
Yeah, and all this following a scene where they let a giraffe loose in a church and they almost drowned in a vat of chocolate. So yeah. the the hijinks were real. I did enjoy the uh the the giraffe loose in the church. I mean it looks so silly. I'll be honest. That's probably one of the uh least appealing looking scenes in, in the film, but the fact that this giraffe really wants these acacia mints or whatever that are in Rowan Atkinson's pocket. This is uh it's pretty silly. So mm. I enjoyed that. And then the whole vat of chocolate thing is pretty silly. I mean, just a horrible way to go, by the way. If they had died that way, that's like that's like uh, getting getting drowned in gold levels bad, I think, from like a gold finger or whatever in 007. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it's uh, like, you know, drowning is bad enough, but then it's like thick. It's the thickness of it and everything. I feel like it would just chocolate. be worse yeah. than Crazy. just pure water. Uh, I think so, yeah. I, I must imagine so. But yeah, that's uh, that's good. And then the very last scene in the film is is them singing "Pure Imagination" or whatever mm -hmm. as the as Wonka imagines the eventual factory that he will build, who will build and run with the help of Hugh Grant's Oompa Loompa. I thought it was a little. I mean, I know why they did it. I thought it was a bit lame. I think the film would have been better ending on Noodle being reunited with her mother. But I get why they did it, nevertheless. It was fine. Yeah, I didn't mind. Yeah. Although it is just like. You know, it ends on that note, and then it's like, oh, well, now I'll go watch the next movie. It's like, well, wait a minute. Where did this go wrong, right? Because things right. things yeah. in Willy Wonka change and the Chocolate Factory are not quite as he envisions them at the end of this movie. So, Look, maybe that's maybe it's continuing the great narrative arc of what capitalism does to people. I mean, right? yeah. Like, it just makes you a little darker. It turns a little bit. It recontextualizes your old doll story, you know. I think I may be reading a little heavier into into that than in, than intended in the text. You may be. Never, yeah, nevertheless. I, I'm not sure how much more I have to add about this film, Scott, unless you'd like to, you know, postscript any other thoughts about this film. Any any other piece. humor bits that worked for you? Um, not really. I mean, you know, my no, okay. my uh relationship with humor in films is complicated. And you don't like it very much? Yeah, I got it. Okay. Generally speaking, yes. Uh, <laughs> and and certainly this movie is not going to be the one to cure me of that. So no, I yeah, I don't think so. But there were funny movies this year, Scott. I, I I we will talk about, you know, we'll do our best of the year in about a month or so. But like sure. There were Where you'll have real uplifting comedies like Killers of the Flower Moon and <laughs> and other spoiler. other similar ilk. Uh, I'm just no, guessing. I don't know. I assume that it will be on your list. <laughs> yeah, that's the same assumption. But no, there there may be a comedy in my top ten. There were two or three movies this year that made me laugh very hard. Cool. Well, uh, in the meantime, while we're waiting on that, why don't you go ahead and give your favorite scene or moment from Wonka? I mean, I've kind of said all the moments that I enjoyed the most from this movie. So, you know, again, I guess I'll just highlight the sequence of scenes at the end um the moments i've talked about and you know of course the the uh culmination of basil and uh gwenny glenny again whatever her name was uh gwen yeah gwen okay. gwenny yeah. yeah uh the culmination of their arc was was very charming i think one of the funnier comedy bits that worked for me in the film and i'll just highlight that is since we have talked about a bunch of scenes is when he manages to get the dog to work for him in in Miss Scrubbit's like basement or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, setting up this whole contraption, and they're um, they're singing the song like Scrubbity Scrub or whatever. I don't know what they actually call the song or not, but they're singing the song, and it's like a remixed version where they've changed the words. And we're like, I, I did think that scene worked well, and um, I found it funny. And and overall, the 
again, a lot of the stuff is very forgettable in this film, which is why I think talking about the film as a series of like moments of like, oh, what what are the funny things of the characters that worked for you in, in this fleeting way is kind of how to approach talking about the film. Yeah. But that is that is one of the ones that I thought was funnier that we hadn't talked about yet. Yeah. What was the name of the dog? I don't really remember the name of the dog. Beats me. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving Wonka? 7.5, it's fun. 7.5, yeah. For me, it's a little bit lower than that. I'm giving it a 6.8, but I enjoyed it certainly and would, as I mentioned already, recommend it for anyone looking for fun this holiday season because I think that probably is one of the few films that checks that box that I could comfortably recommend everyone in the family going to go see uh, and not have any uh, withholdings. Would not necessarily recommend Maestro as a film fun for the whole family, for example. No. No. Yeah. Some people would not be interested, but then turned off by other elements. And I would not recommend The Iron Claw either, even though a man brought his six-year-old child to see it. Uh, They did not make it to the end of the film. Ah, okay. All right. Well, I think with that, we should wrap up episode 258 of Some Like It, Scott. Where can people find you on social media? I am at Scarby Dent on all platforms. And you can find me at at Shelton2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized. Don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon as well at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated and reviewed subscribed, shared, et cetera, all those things. So we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Maestro and Wonka. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the film Scott was just talking about, The Iron Claw. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next time. See you down the road. Merry Christmas.